Astronomy Cast, episode 626, The Terrestrial Planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Professor Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I am cold. I am cold. In my studio, it is 18 degrees Celsius. It's in the 60s inside mm. the house because outside, we're in the negative numbers yeah. and our house needs new windows. Uh, we should at least acknowledge, I know you don't want to talk about it, but there exists a telescope called James Webb and things seem to be <laughs> happening to this telescope. Uh, that's all we can, that's all I think Pamela is willing to talk about this week. Maybe in future fair. weeks we will go into greater detail, uh, but f- until it is fully deployed, it is a telescope that shall not be named. So yeah. I've, 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 I've already enraged her uh, bringing this up, <laughs> <laughs> brought, <laughs> sort of brought forward deep-seated emotional scars and uh, now she's going to need probably a, a nice stiff drink afterwards to uh, to get over the the anxiety but we're just another another week or two and we're fully deployed and then we move into the into the testing of phase anyway i'm not gonna talk about it anymore uh the thing that i do want to talk about is that we are looking to bring on more of the science communicators for the weekly space hangout crew for the weekly space hangout and of course this is the show that we do every wednesday it's like a round table of a variety of space science communicators some are practicing astronomers some are phd graduates some are space journalists like me and we rotate through this group of people and we've got a bunch of slots to open up. And the person that this is perfect for is someone who wants more practice or wants any kind of practice in doing live science communication. If you just want to build your chops in communicating either your ideas or just science ideas in general to a wide audience in a fairly, you know, I'm... I, I feel like it's a fairly forgiving and non-hostile mm-hmm. environment, and it's really a place for you to get training. And so if you feel like there's just not a lot of places for you to get practice and this is a field that you want to do or skills that you want to add, then we would love to have you join us at the Weekly Space Hangout and be one of our journalists every week. So send an email to Nancy Graziano, Crew one at gmail.com, or you can just go to the website and there'll be information there, and let her know that you're interested, and then tell your info and and what you're looking to get out of it and we would love to have you join us so that's it let's move on to the show we continue our refreshed tour of the solar system checking in on the inner terrestrial planets mercury venus earth and mars what have we learned about the formation evolution and what they might tell us about planets across the universe all right uh where do you want to go with this how should we start i mean it's been i don't know 10 years, 12 years since we've talked about the inner solar system. So it may make sense to, to have another crack at it. And and what I, I love is in, in the Trello notes for this show, I had omitted Mercury to put Mercury in the next episode when we're talking about other things that are super close to the sun. But it's, so and, it's not a terrestrial planet? <laughs> well, it's, it's all big old rock and mm. and so when you look at the histories of of mars of venus of earth all three of these worlds for their first three billion years or so 
We're experiencing the great heavy bombardment and had liquid oceans and have had tectonic episodes and continue to have geophysical activity that alters the face of the planet. And little Mercury is, is literally off screen in the image that will not let me drag it. It's literally off screen. It's not even on this image, in fact. Right. I thought it right. was off screen. And, and the thing is that because it's small, because it's unusually dense, because it has an ion tail, the geophysics of, of Mercury are radically different than what we hmm. see with these three larger worlds. Okay, well, we'll 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 cover Mercury more uh, next week, but let's focus then on on the larger and farther uh, planets, Venus, Earth, and and Mars. If you were to sort of characterize them in their togetherness, what would you define them? How would you define them? These are worlds that have had liquid oceans at some point in their history have potentially had life at some point in their history and continue to have their environment altered through meteorological processes of varying degrees of deadliness. So let's talk about the water phase. When, I mean, we're familiar with the water here on Earth. Um, when did this exist on Venus? So Venus and Mars both, for roughly the first three billion years of their lives uh, were able to support liquid oceans in their low-lying areas. Uh, and what is amazing as we think about this is life here on Earth really began to evolve during those first three billion years. We didn't so much have anything that was more than like single-celled and squishy but we had life in those first three billion years. And, and if it was only as they neared, well, two billion years ago, um, that they became utterly inhospitable, there's, there's the potential that those early oceans contained microbes. Hmm. And this gets to the whole idea, though, of why did they both die? And the diverging history of these three worlds gives us a new view that we didn't even imagine last time we talked about these worlds on just how the Goldilocks problem isn't a problem for today. It's a problem for how things evolved over time. Okay, so why did Venus die? Venus, as near as we can tell, had a massive runaway greenhouse effect and depending on what papers you read, it was either several hundred million years ago to billions of years ago. And that runaway greenhouse effect that was driven by a change in chemistry, potentially by sudden volcanism across the entire world, um, or by ongoing volcanism that destroyed the planet a little more slowly. However you destroyed the environment, it was a greenhouse environment that thickened the environment thickened that atmosphere. And as it got thicker, it trapped the heat in. Sunlight comes in, infrared radiation comes off the soil, and then just bounces around. 
do we think the 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 volcanism happened first or the runaway greenhouse happened first? Uh, the papers that I trust most have the two things being interrelated, where hmm. for unexplainable reasons, Venus sat there building up heat, building up heat, and then just either flipped its surface in mass volcanism across the entire world or had a massive epoch of volcanism that has continued across the planet, resurfacing the entire world over the past hundreds of millions of years. I mean, here on Earth, we have the carbon cycle. We have the, mm-hmm. we have the plate tectonics that shift the surface of the Earth around. And as carbon dioxide is generated on the surface, it gets sequestered. It goes underneath the plates and disappears out of the atmosphere and out of the surface environment. And we don't see that on Venus. We don't see any plate tectonics on Venus. So I guess same question, right? Did, did Venus's heat shut down its plate tectonics or did its lack of plate tectonics drive its heat? And, and this is something we don't know. And yeah. one of the problems is we haven't been able to get anything to live on its surface robot-wise um, long enough to go looking for earthquakes. And so while there are hints in research of areas uh, called crony, crowns, that look like recent volcanic activity, we can't measure the earthquakes, Venus quakes, I guess, that would either be caused by ongoing volcanism or would allow us to trace out the existence of plates. We can't do either. So we assume Venus doesn't have plates. We don't know if it has active volcanism. What we do know is some horrible point in its past built up too much heat in its atmosphere, evaporated all of the water, which became a new greenhouse gas, caused deadly acidic chemistry to take place, and potentially created a place where life can only exist in the clouds. And that idea just refuses to go away. There could still be life on Venus in the clouds. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of researchers that think the dark patches that get seen in its clouds periodically may actually be the aerosolized version of an algae bloom. But we don't know, but we're going to send the mm-hmm. spacecraft there and hopefully yes. find out. Yeah, and I guess that was the, I guess that was my my point or that I was about to make was that, that we have three separate spacecraft that are going that Venus is is chronically tragically underexplored. Yeah. Mars is crawling with robots, but Venus, we haven't had a serious mission to Venus. There's the Akatsuki, the Venus Express, and then like Magellan in 98. So it's been a long well, time and we haven't had a really serious and attempts to land on the surface was like in the, in the mid eighties. So it's time to go back to Venus for real, bring the modern equipment and get to the bottom of these mysteries. And and it's just that much harder to go someplace it's warm. And and the thing that brings this home to me is when I'm out gardening in the summer, if I set my iPhone down in the sun, it ceases to function in 20 minutes flat or less. But in the winter, if I do the exact same thing, my phone's like, I'm cold. You're going to run out of battery fast, but... I'm not going to give you any big warning messages and die until the battery goes. Right. right. And and the difference between 
having to figure out how to shed heat, which is hard, versus trying to figure out how to prevent your batteries from dying in the cold, generating heat is easy, uh, makes a, well, a world of difference between Mars and Venus. All right. We, I wouldn't say we know why Venus died. We, <laughs> we, we, we have a series of inter, interrelated complexities that may have contributed to the death of Venus. Uh, answer waiting for spacecraft to arrive. What killed Mars? Well, with Mars, um, it lacked the ability to hold on to its atmosphere. So Venus died because its atmosphere got thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker and chemistry and death. On, on Mars, early on, its atmosphere was somewhat maintained by the fact that it had a repository of materials, ices, oceans, all of that that formed an atmosphere, could sublimate, evaporate into being an atmosphere. But over time, the sun and lack of gravity just and lack of a magnetic field that made the sun's effects greater. Uh, it just slowly pushed it away, and it continues to do so. If hydrogen or helium is released into our atmosphere, it's gone very quickly. If you release pretty much anything into Mars' atmosphere, it's gone pretty quickly. And here on Earth, the reason we lose hydrogen and helium so fast is it'll get hit by an oxygen molecule, nitrogen molecule, and that transfer of momentum sends it away at escape velocities. Without a strong magnetic field, pretty much anything you put into Mars' atmosphere, it's going to get eventually affected by the solar wind and blown away at escape velocities. Although it is kind of interesting that that the story of Mars water, I mean, that was that was definitely the understanding was that all the water on Mars had evaporated and gotten broken up and pushed out, in, you know, using this by the yeah. sun, solar wind. But it does appear now that that a lot of Mars's water went into the planet, got absorbed by the rock underneath, and that it might actually have larger source of water under the sur- surface than we originally thought. And and this is where the key word is, the surface water capable of sublimating into the atmosphere. That's what went away. There is tantalizing evidence of dust-covered buried glaciers, of subsurface brines. And, And every month it seems like there's a new press release on new evidence of water at more equatorial radii than ever before and um yeah it's it's a world that just might have ice we can access and potentially even vast amounts at that massive trench shown in the image here along the bottom of that trench where the atmosphere is the thickest it is anywhere on mars and so here you have the largest canyon in the solar system with not enough air to breathe, but more than elsewhere, and potentially water and protection from a whole lot of radiation all down at the bottom of that canyon. Yeah, we talked about this last or two weeks ago with the yeah. 2021 show that I thought this was one of the biggest stories of the year. And 
and hopefully we'll see a lot more exploration and information about this that that the water on Mars could be tantalizingly close, easy to access, and could be a total game changer, both in the search for life, but also just in the support of exploration of the planet. You go to Earth? Well, yeah. So I want to talk about Earth, but I also just want to talk about, like, I mean, you know, we asked what killed those two planets. Like, what killed Earth? Us. All right. Moving <laughs> on. Um, but, but I want to know, I guess I want to put this in context for how we feel about terrestrial planets in general as we think about this in the context of extrasolar planets what what is this starting to tell us what are we starting to think about what we're going to find as we look around the rest of the galaxy both what we know about earth and what we know about venus and mars i i think instead of viewing planets as following some Goldilocks scenario of this one's too hot, this one's too cold, this one's too, this one's just right. It is much more like an avocado where it's too hard, too hard, too hard, perfect mush. And, and, And so you have this moment and that moment is different depending on which avocado or which planet you look at. And it's how long a world is habitable that is is really the question. That that we can have all sorts of different scenarios where right now something evolving fast enough could exist could exist. Mm-hmm. But if you wait, even our world is going to become no longer habitable. Yeah. And and so the question becomes how big is the window and it's the world's with the biggest window the biggest period of being not too hard and not too mushy. That's that's the exciting time to find them and we're still figuring out what is that window for different kinds of worlds. I mean what does it look like? I mean where where would we find the the best chance of picking up an avocado in the store? Planet in in an exoplanetary sense, and it being ready to spread on your avocado toast. Well, there's some really cool research that just came out in the past. I want to say in the past week that was looking at a new way of simulating solar systems, where they added into their simulations the difference in pressure you have in the disk around a star at the different places where materials change phase. So you're going to get this change in pressure at that point where water suddenly goes from being water vapor to being water ice. You're going to get a change in pressure at that point where silica suddenly is able to either vaporize or solidify. And a star like our sun creates planets at the places our solar system created planets given the fullness of time and that temperature distribution through the early disk. (laughs) And so if that person's right and never believe a planet formation model, but I like this one (laughs) because it actually reproduced our solar system. Right. Um, If this is right, then to get the distribution planets we see, you have to have the temperature profile that we have. So the question becomes, and I'm guessing these simulations still need to be run, what other temperatures end up with the pressure boundaries just right that 
in the fullness of time, with everything evolving, moving around over time, do you end up with planets at that, I'm not going to say magical, I'm not going to say golden, Goldilocks. I'm going to say, <laughs> what was that? Habitable, Goldilocks, yeah, just it's, right. Well, at, at, yeah, in that sweet spot, I guess that's the mm-hmm. best word I can come up with, yeah. Wait, that ends up with planets in that sweet spot where they they are the right size to be able to generate a magnetic field and not cool off too fast, where they don't get hit so much that they end up with the rotation getting slowed down and ending their magnetic field early, which probably happened to Venus. They have that sweet spot where they're able to hold on to the magnetic field, have enough heat, and are able to have and hold on to an atmosphere long enough to evolve life. But this sounds like you're throwing in a lot more variables. Is this constraining the size of a habitable zone for an extrasolar planetary system? Like narrowing the size of it to where you get those pressure gradients? Or is it just that... You, it also depends on the chemistry of the planets, the size, the magnetosphere, etc. What is, what would be habitable to Mars-sized planets might be different than what's habitable to Earth or Venus-sized planets. And and then we also get down to the life as we know it versus life that's living beneath a shell of ice. Mm-hmm. So when we look at strictly the Goldilocks scenario of Mars, Earth, Venus. There we're starting to say, okay, so you're able to get planets cropping up at these places that have these experiences if you have a a sun-like star with this temperature profile. Right. We would have to rerun all the scenarios to see what do you get with bigger and larger stars and can you get a similar outcome with different distances. And then, yeah, chemistry is part of that. Because depending on the chemistry, things glom together in different ways, and you may or may not have enough stuff to form big, rocky worlds. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm getting at is one really awesome paper published one really awesome way to actually explain how we got our solar system, and we're a long way from figuring out other solar systems. Yeah. More computer time, please. Yeah, yeah. But it's always going back to that question, right? Are we normal? Because because yeah. we're wonderful. Um, and I'm talking about that in the, in the solar system sense. The fact that we have a planet, that blue planet yeah. with, with life covering it in this corner of the Milky Way is phenomenal. And we see horrible hellscape Venus to the left of us and awful, cold, frigid, dusty Mars to the right of us. And yet we're doing great, and and I think the the question, like the question, still like we know of thousands of planets, but yeah. the question that just really hangs over us is that were there a thousand variables that all had to come together to make Earth the kind of planet that it is, or did, or did it just take one or two fairly common <sighs> situations to happen? And and as we explore and as the tools come online for us to find explore these other planets will we realize that earth is extra special as opposed to just regular special and and this is where i i think back to when i was learning to solve the quadratic equation and there were 
annoyingly two possible answers. <laughs> yes. And, and yes, there are probably far more than thousands of variables that go into it that all have to line up just right to get our world. But then there may be a different solution. There may be infinite different solutions. Yeah. That can get to other forms of habitable. Yeah. And that, that it could be a, like a steady state that is that the universe reaches. Like like the, the variables all could play together and get you yeah. to this this standard point all the time. There there was another paper you probably saw that came out this week that uh, talked about how the uh, history of supernova explosions near yes. our solar system affected our world's ability to have life because the ionizing radiation of the supernovae generated greater cloud cover and affected the temperature history of our world. Yeah. And so, like, could you not have life without a whole bunch of supernova going off at the right times right. nearby? Like, that just gets extreme at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So we we are just starting to know how many variables we have to figure yep. out. And we haven't figured out all the variables. And we certainly haven't figured out the values of all the variables. Yeah. We just know. We, we have life here for now. Mars and Venus could have had life. Yep. May still have life as we do not know it. And that's amazing. Um, if you switch, what do you think? If you switched Mars and Venus in their orbits, uh-huh. do you think that would make a difference for either one of them? Would Venus be more habitable? I mean, Mars, I think, would, would be ruined either way. Yeah, Mars is ruined either way. It, it, yeah. That lack of a magnetic field. So, I th- <sighs> Venus... If it hadn't had the bejesus knocked out of it by whatever changed its rotation to be counter to the direction you would expect so that its Mm. days are longer than its years, uh, I I feel like playing with its rotation rate would get you Hmm. a long ways as well. So the question becomes, how much do you have to change the day-night cycle, and where do you need to put it to rescue it? Right. Magnetic fields. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. All right, well, thank you, Pamela. Thank you. All right, do you have some names for us? I do. So, as always, our show is brought to you by you. We are immensely grateful to all of you who are part of our Patreon community and to those of you who have become one-time donors through PayPal. Now, those of you who have made the one-time donations, I love you. You are amazing. But the Patreon's names I get to read right now. So I'm going to go ahead and read some of our Patreons. Andrew Stevenson, Benjamin Davies, Glenn McDavid, Stephen Coffey, Elad Avron, The Mysterious Mark, Jen Greenwald, Smansky, Kinsiaia Pimflinko, Joe Wilkinson, Planetar, Sean Freeman, and Blexa the Cat, Peter. Roland Warmerdam, Dean, John Ushef, The Air Major, Sabra Lark, Brian Kelby, Arctic Fox, Claudio Mastriani, uh, Aaron Tannenbaum, Bart Flaherty, Corrine Duptruck, Analia, 
Tim Garish, Lou Zealand, Jordan Turner, Ray Venning, Alan Price, uh, Mark Van Coy, Leah Harborn, Mark Phillips, Kathleen Matson, Bob the Cat, Chris Wheelwright, Jason Kerdalkas, Olivia Brian Zank, Ron Thorson, Papa 1062, Robert Hundi, uh, Kim Baron Vitali, Paul Esposita, uh, Arthur Latzhall, Scott Briggs, Ruben McCarthy, Umu, Jeff McDonald, Wayne Johnson, and Iggy Hammock. And if I've mispronounced your name, I'm very sorry. You, it's inevitable. You can, like, change your Patreon username to be phonetically spelled, and I'll <laughs> do better, I promise. Thank you. All right. Thanks, thanks everyone. Thanks, Pamela. <laughs> Bye-bye. Astronomy Cast is a joint product of Universe Today and the Planetary Science Institute. Astronomy Cast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. So love it, share it, and remix it. But please credit it to our hosts, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can get more information on today's show topic on our website, astronomycast.com. This episode was brought to you thanks to our generous patrons on Patreon. If you want to help keep this show going, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash astronomycast. Not only do you help us pay our producers a fair wage, you will also get special access to content right in your inbox and invites to online events. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined our Patreon community already. Anyways, keep looking up. This has been Astronomy Cast.